Hello, this is Richard Outram, and welcome to the Prepare for Growth podcast series, bite-sized wisdom for leadership and personal development. So thank you for taking time out to join me. I'm so grateful for this unique opportunity. Okay, and in this week's podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce Steve Vinci, a global compliance expert and president and CEO of Trestle Compliance, providing risk assessments, compliance programs, and software for biotech, pharmaceutical, and medtech innovators. Steve was counsel to the US House of Representatives Oversight Committee. He has over 25 years of experience in regulatory compliance matters from government policy and enforcement to private sector businesses. Steve was an officer of the US Marines Corps and has an AB degree from Columbia University, a JD Southern Methodist University School of Law, an LLM in International and Comparative Law with Distinction, Georgetown University, and an MBA, University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He has been a guest lecturer at University of Chicago, Harvard Business School, UC Berkeley, University of Miami School of Business, and INSEAD. And Steve's wisdom bite for today, for this episode, is turning compliance into a force multiplier. Steve, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. This is fabulous. What a great resume. Fabulous. I'm honored. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm honored to be on this show, but uh, my resume is proof positive that I'm a certifiable masochist, (laughs) first being in compliance, but then going through all those schools, more schools than anyone should do in one lifetime. But uh, I I couldn't be happier to be on this program to to share what I can uh, so that people can actually see another side of compliance that is not necessarily intuitive. Absolutely. And Steve, first and foremost, thank you for your service to our great country. Absolutely. wonderful. Thank you for that. Again, my honor and privilege. Absolutely. And did you want to add anything else to the introduction, Steve, at all? Uh, Well, I just wanted to say that, first of all, uh, I wish everyone a happy holiday season. And there may be some folks going in and out here just uh, periodically. So please ignore that. But again, a happy holidays to everyone. Uh, It's a very special time of year uh, on the heels of Thanksgiving, um, a unique American holiday we should all be thankful for what we have. And uh, I know in the hubbub of business and, and life, sometimes we lose sight of what's most important. And I think that's our, our human relationships and our relationships with uh, a higher authority, so to speak, uh, that sort of puts things in perspective. So I know I'm very thankful. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be able to impart uh, some value uh, to, to others. Uh, and I find that the more you give, the more you receive. Absolutely. Here, here. I couldn't have said it better, Steve. Thank you for that. And gratitude every day, for sure. All right, so let's kick it off. This is the first segment, Steve, in the What Have You Learned segment. And so this is a critical, critical subject matter. It's not even a topic. Topic is kind of too small for me. I think this is a critical global matter we have to talk about here, right, in terms of compliance. But let's kick it off at a basic level, Steve. What is compliance and risk mean in business? Well, historically, compliance has been, of course, compliance with what? Compliance with laws and regulations. Um, And in fact, uh, in the not too recent past, say about 20 years ago, I've worked with attorneys uh, who would essentially forbid the use of the word risk. And these are both government and, and corporate attorneys. 
The concept being that if you accept the notion of risk, which means something less than 100% compliance, you you accept less than 100% compliance, which in the legal world uh, may be an admission to liability. Thank God, though, <laughs> that thinking is no longer true, as we see from directives from the Department of Justice itself and from the Office of Inspector General at Health and Human Services, where risk is part and parcel uh, of an effective compliance program. The recognition is, is that uh, risk is a part of life. Uh, when you get up and, and get in the car, there's inherent risk uh, in that activity of crossing a street. <laughs> there's inherent risk. So you can't rule it out. You can't outlaw it, forbid it artificially, because it's still there. Um, so historically, there's been that distinction. Now we've actually progressed significantly where uh, compliance uh, has taken on a broader meaning. Um, and uh, it, it's taken on a, a more of a corporate governance um, element uh, where it's uh, much more of a critical component of how do you inspire, motivate, and keep people focused on accomplishing a mission? Uh, and how do you get that to happen? Uh, and so that's risk is something you have to identify um, and, and put in processes and procedures and training, et cetera, to, to address. You, you can't eliminate it 100%. You have to be aware of it. You have to factor it in to your decision-making. Uh, and and then live with it. <laughs> um, but compliance, again, is compliance with laws and regulations, but now more broadly, compliance with processes uh, within your your organization. Absolutely. No, great. That's so. So on that one, Steve, you know, why do I need to comply? And what's in it for me if I do? Aren't those the big questions? When we talk about compliance and risk management, it's a bit scary for people. All right. Particularly- oh, it- what I found in my uh, three decades of, of the business world, especially for the entrepreneurial mindset, right? They, they, they see they've got a vision, they see opportunity. Oh my God, I don't want to see the risk on this one. So why don't you? Yeah. No, it's a great question, Richard. And it's you're absolutely right. I'll never forget the first time I was introduced uh, as the first compliance officer to an organization. Uh, all the happy faces, the back slapping, the talk about golf games and barbecues in the summertime all disappeared. There was silence and people were like this. And it was, compliance quite literally was a downer. Uh, and whenever the compliance officer walked into the room, that's sort of the reaction. Why? Because people were afraid that that is just a set of big brother, corporate big brother, looking over your shoulder to play gotcha. Aha, you broke some kind of rule or regulation or even a law. And they're afraid of that compliance is just about, well, what are they going to tell me that I can't do, I shouldn't do? Uh, but uh, I went home that night and said, you know what? This isn't going to work for me. <laughs> I like people and I want to work with people. I'm a team kind of guy. And so we got to turn this around. And so that was back in 1995. And uh it's it's taken some time to sort of figure out exactly how to do it. But I think the first thing is to recognize that compliance cannot be just about what's right in front of you, right? It has to be about the bigger picture. It has to be about why the organization, the business exists. What is the mission of the organization? What are the values driving that organization? And you have to tie uh, compliance. Certainly, uh, there's an absolute need to understand 
the specific laws and regulation, because guess what? They're there for some good reasons, particularly in healthcare. It's about life and death. It's about safety, first and foremost. And then uh, efficacy. Uh, when you really study the history of the FDA, you really realize that a um, it took a, a lot of scary stuff happening back in the 19th century where children were killed through these elixirs and, and something literally uh, branded as snake oil. Um, was killing folks. And then in the meatpacking uh, industry with Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, uh, it took uh, that to not that long ago, really, uh, a little over 100 years ago, create this Food and Drug Administration. And since that time, there's been this high degree of concern and skepticism about safety because there have been abuses. So there's some really good reasons to understand why these laws and regulations exist to protect uh, citizens and taxpayers. But then also more recently, there's just a heck of a lot of money <laughs> involved that's reimbursed. So again, the government uh, wants to keep from being ripped off uh, to the tune of billions of dollars. So again, one of the things I learned in the Marines as a Marine officer uh, is that you need to inspire and motivate uh, your troops. But one way of doing that, an important way, is to explain why they're doing what they're doing, explain the mission, explain the rationale. Just today, I, I read a snippet in the news article about why the Russian troops are uh, not performing well in the field, shall we say. Uh, and, and there was uh, someone that was sent there. And according to this account, he said they have no idea what their mission is or why they're there. So again, uh, inspiring, motivating people to want to comply is the secret sauce, I would suggest. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really well said. But Steve, why is risk so hard to talk about? <laughs> well, uh, it's scary. Uh, it's, yeah. it's like anything else that has uh, serious consequences and very little room for error. Um, people tend to shy away from those topics. It's uncomfortable. It makes you squeamish. It makes you sort of uh, go like this and gnash your teeth. And, uh, you know, people don't like to feel that way. And so that's uh, another uh, key recognition point here is that, you know what, some things we have to talk about, but then how we talk about them really makes a huge difference. And the, the, Biggest mistake, if I may say it that way, that I've seen my fellow colleagues and, in fact, in the early days myself make as an attorney is that you get too technical. You get too cut and dry, black and white, become very speaking the language of the law versus the language of people versus the language that your audience understands. Understanding your audience, whether you're an actor or a, a speech writer or a speech maker, really any profession, um, you need to integrate that because you have to connect not just with their minds but with their hearts and that's again what triggers good marketing uh folks understand that you want to trigger an experience uh, uh, a, a multi-dimensional experience that draws people in to whatever service or product you're selling um, because that's what is meaningful to people you want to tie meaning to compliance and all too often in the past that just hasn't happened absolutely and you know listen to one of your programs your podcasts and some of your writings um just a few points which really resonated with me steve was to your point about inspiring people to comply building a culture of trust doing what's right not just what's required risk agility is a competitive advantage and 
you mentioned also in one of your writings about there's a bit of uh, behavioral science involved there. We get overconfident and we've got confirmation bias, which is why risk is so hard to talk about. Hit a, hit a little bit on that point about the behavioral side of this. Uh, yes, absolutely. And first, I'm, I'm very flattered that you clearly have done your research on me. And and uh, I, I'm flattered by that as someone of your, your caliber has done this. Thank you. Uh, but yes, um, so Dr. Daniel Kahneman, PhD, retired professor from Princeton, who wrote a book, uh, I believe it's called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, or maybe it's the other way around. I always juxtapose that. <laughs> maybe that says something about my mind. But anyway, he's a Nobel laureate, and I got to listen to him in person at a Harvard uh, executive education session back in the late 90s. And, um, you know, I was busy uh, taking notes and reading something, and all of a sudden he said something. You know, Hungarians are inherently risk averse. And that caught my attention because I'm Hungarian. My parents are immigrated from that country. And so he said, you know, any Hungarian you meet, they say, oh, do you realize the probability of that happening? And they're so pessimistic. And I just started laughing out loud because he just quoted my father, uh, who who uh, tried to explain to me that as to why I wouldn't make the 1980 Olympic team um, for rowing, which I was uh, invited to try out for. But of course, that never happened because we boycotted the Olympics that year. But in any event, uh, Dr. Kahneman's point in his book is that you know certain people, and, and, and this is often true with entrepreneurs, underestimate risk. You know, they just go for it, go for it and abandon. And they underestimate risk. Other types of people overestimate risk. And so, um, Risk gets a bad rap, so to speak, because the folks that overestimate it uh, tend to lose credibility with the folks that underestimate it. And, and the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. So um, the person that finds that sweet spot and can explain it uh, and bring uh, the, the two extremes, because it's good to have those two extremes, uh, because any team, uh, as we learned from Abraham Lincoln's cabinet uh, during the Civil War, needs to have a lot of different perspectives. And that's why diversity is such a, a valuable asset for any team and organization. You know, in sports, you have the, the grizzled veterans who've been to a championship and knows what it takes to win. Then you have the young raw talent that, that just uh, are talented, but need to refine and hone that talent. And the best combination that we've seen always is, is putting that together with the, with the wisdom to guide it towards success. And that's called leadership. Uh, but, you know, all too often, this topic of risk and compliance becomes very sterile, dry, again, focused on technicalities that are important, don't misunderstand. But you lose your audience like that. Uh, they go to sleep um, or they get so scared that they don't want to talk about it. Um, one of the things that is so important I have found is being able to uh, again, win the trust of people. And and the first rule is be sincere. Be, really do your homework as you have done um, and win my trust as you have by sharing with me that you care about that other person you're talking to, that you, that you can place yourself in their shoes and look at the world through their eyes, that their perspective really matters. And it matters to you. And whether you're the CEO, whether you're CFO, general counsel, or chief compliance officer, all too often, uh, the rap is, is that these people are in the ivory tower and just care about their bonus and not about the people that work for them. 
that's the rap out there, according to, to reports I've read about, you know, Soviet officers, excuse me, not Soviet, Russian officers um, and their troops. Uh, again, any good leader, regardless of the environment, um, leads by example. And people, and this is a key point that I make, people can feel it. They feel it in your voice. They, they see it in your body language. They, they see it in your actions. Uh, you know, people should always remember most people are blessed with, you know, their senses. So tap into those senses visually through their hearing, et cetera. Use what you can to communicate and win over their hearts and minds to that broader vision. So in life sciences is to improve people's lives, to save their lives, to treat whatever disease they're suffering from. And that's what we're about. And that should be motivating, exciting. Any day you get up, that whatever your role is, if you're a salesperson, if you're a researcher, if you're head of finance, whatever it is, that you're helping that mission come to life and bring it to life. Um, and if I may, and I know I'm going on a little bit here, uh, one of the most inspiring uh, videos I've ever seen that uh, my firm a shot for this company for a national sales meeting was of a mother, a young mother staring right into the camera and, and, and addressing the national sales meeting and saying, you know why I want you to be compliant? Because you've seen my little boy. He's suffering from a very rare disease that your company's product uh, still can't address. He has a, the rarest form of that disease where you can address patients that have a certain version of it, but not yet his. But if you get out of compliance, you're going to risk discovering the solution. You're going to risk the research and the funding that's needed to help cure him and save his life, because that's what it's about. And it's like the whole audience stood up and clapped and cheered. You know, that's, and I appreciate your patience, but that's the kind of emotion you want to tap into that's sincere, that's real, that's genuine and and to get people to want to comply because you know what that makes sense i want to do the right thing and and then to tie that to performance incentives you you, you are you are just hitting on such an important point steve i love it i love it and and what you're saying here because i've been part of many enterprise risk programs and and you know um executive levels of which i was part of we tried to roll this out and establish one um, and, and we know there's certain kind of functional areas, including the financial one where I come from, which is very risk averse. And, uh, you know, you develop policies and procedures and you expect everyone to follow them, um, et cetera. But the, the building it into the fabric of the culture and um, establishing that emotional connection and that emotional intelligence to make its way through the, me the social mechanism of the company is critically important. Otherwise, it's just rules and policies and big brother. Exactly. It's it, it, very, very well said, Steve. Thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, sure. That so how do businesses turn compliance into a force multiplier that delivers a competitive advantage? Well, um, you know, you can speak in high-minded ways in the abstract about it, but uh, good CEOs are about and good leaders, not just CEOs, are about execution. Uh, there's a book by that title of, uh, by a former CEO, um, Larry Bossidy, that talks about execution. And, and all too often, um, leaders make the mistake of making a decision um, and then second-guessing it. And, and one of the things uh, Mr. Bossidy says, you know what, um, 
you can't have a hundred percent of the information you need to make a good decision. You have to go with with what you can, what's available, because time matters. Uh, if, if you wait too long, the opportunity will be gone. So you have to make a decision quickly with the best information you have, and then you need to execute against it as best that you can, and then adjust uh, as you can. So, uh, so that's one of the things that uh, I strongly recommend that. Uh, that we need to get very specific and, and and tactical. So on the one hand, compliance conversation can be strategic, as we've talked about here uh, in the first few minutes. But then the execution of it has to be tactical and very carefully thought out. Um, and that's where technical proficiency is so important. You know, when I recruit and interview people, uh, I try to distill it down to two key components. And I'm not unique this way. I know other people have said this, the competence and character. You need to know your stuff and you need to be competent in the specifics of your industry, the specifics of the risks that your industry faces. But then you have to have the character. Um, and I would add a third one, the charisma uh, to connect. So maybe that's four C's, uh, uh, confidence, character, charisma, and connection. It equals connection. So um, I'll have to write that down. <laughs> it's just pretty good. That, that, was, on the, ooh, that was good. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but in any event, uh, to answer your question, Richard, uh, um, you know, people are afraid of risk because, uh, again, of the implications uh, of it. And then in terms of how do you address risk, um, you have to be upfront with people. So some people lose credibility real fast. You say, all right, we're going to have a lot of fun here. Well, maybe not so much this time. <laughs> maybe this time we're going to have to sort of roll up our sleeves and just really grit our teeth uh, because it's important. It's it's like, again, uh, I, uh, having been an athlete, it's just the world that I know. I know others have a music analogies, but um there's nothing I've ever done that doesn't require some hard work that isn't always pleasant. The The first thing to get people to want to do it, right, is to, uh, first of all, identify the goal that you're working towards, that this will help you get there, uh, and then do it with them, and, and then show how it will actually work and deliver the results along the way and and break that down into steps so that they're clear, they're achievable, and they're motivating when, once you get there. So whether it's a, a diet program or whether it's a workout program or a compliance program for that matter, uh, that you, again, understand the human psyche uh, of people. Uh, and again, different people are different. So not everyone responds to the same thing. Uh, uh, and again, not to stereotype, but um, as you mentioned in the finance world, uh, tends to be more risk averse. But, but there's really good reason for that. <laughs> uh, there, there's some really very serious consequences uh, for getting those numbers wrong in the finance world, as we've seen with Sarbanes-Oxley and, and uh, financial reporting consequences, if particularly publicly traded companies get that wrong. So, and, and the thing about math and finance, generally, it's either right or it's wrong. It either adds up correctly or it doesn't. So it's very clear of uh, usually when that's the case. Again, I'm simplifying it, but uh, I on, on that point, I tend to try to follow the KISS rule, uh, keep it simple, Steve, <laughs> in my version, uh, where, again, most people can identify with that. Uh, uh, so um, let me stop there and, and let you <laughs> interject. Uh, with oh, it's, awesome. it's awesome. I, I want to tug on a couple of themes there. 
Steve, you mentioned, look, I think you mentioned the the days of Sabin's Oxley, and I was, um, you know, I was in it as a CFO. Um, and so the question that comes from that is how do you strike the balance between maintaining the entrepreneurial spirit and risk management? Because you can tip the scales. Um, I found personally, um, as a CFO in the days of Sabin's Oxley, because it was fresh from the Enron days and Arthur Anderson and so on, that uh, you could definitely go on the other side of the scale and be too administrative, too policy driven, and you're stifling any type of innovation or, or entrepreneurialism. How do you yeah. strike that, Steve? I, 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 it's a great question, and it's and it's uh, not easy to to do. I, I was in a meeting late yesterday afternoon that basically hit that point uh, where uh, a sales team. Um, wanted to do something, uh, marketing, sales, marketing, commercial team wanted to do something. Uh, and it involves some risk. Uh, and so we talked about it. And my initial reaction, um, which uh, they knew was fairly unusual because their eyes were open and go, oh, my God, Steve is uh, pretty direct and blunt here today. Um, and I told him why. I said, look, I used to be a prosecutor. Part of my job is to prepare you for that possibility and to avoid it. <laughs> and I got to tell you that what you shared with me has made me react as a prosecutor might. And, and, and the red flag goes up. So here's what I want you to do. Explain to me what it is you want to accomplish as a business and why. Okay. Put it in that context. And you should always ask yourself that question. Um, look in the mirror and be honest with you, yourself, uh, because that's the only way you'll get to the other side in a way that you, you may be able to uh, succeed. So why do you want to do this? Okay. And then how do you explain this nuance that you're sharing with me that on its face, I have concerns with. And so I really pressed them and we went back and forth. And guess what? We came up with the solution that they came up with. And they said, you know what? Um, we hadn't really thought of it that way. And if um, and and then I said, the way you just explained it now makes sense. Now makes sense to me. And so that said, it's still on, on a continuum on a, a higher risk level. But then that becomes a business decision. If, if that's OK with the leadership for a risk appetite. And you know what? Uh, that's their decision as long as they're informed and know why, uh, because there could be a misperception. But again, as long as the intent is correct, as long as the specifics are correct and it's within the boundaries uh, that we understand to be governing these activities, then it's highly defensible. OK, um, and so there's a real gray zone where, uh, again, whether you're in front of uh, federal uh, oversight authorities, regulatory authorities, or whether you're in front of your own board or executive team, the answer should be the same. This is what we did, and this is why we we want to do it, and this is how we did it and why. Uh, and we ran it through these filters, these checks and balances, to make sure we got it right. At the end of the day, every good compliance program should answer the question, is there anything else we could have done? And the answer should be no. That, uh, and, and so that's the test of due diligence. And, and if really of any kind of risk management, you got to really uh, test yourself. Most competitors uh, compete against themselves, against their own inner high standards. Most champions, most people that excel at whatever they do, uh, there's the broader 
public standard, but then there's, there's own, their own internal standard and their own drive. And only they know, really, if they've truly challenged themselves. Uh, and so that's my challenge to the people that I work with uh, and speak to is uh, look yourself in the mirror, ask yourself, what is the business goal we're trying to achieve? And why and how does this make sense? And and make and uh, you know be honest with yourself. If you're saying you know what I'm willing to take the risk, um, and certainly none of my clients do this, but uh, it's been known in the world to people to say you know what I realize we're going to get dinged, we're going to get fined, I'm going to write it off as a business risk, pay the fine, and move on because net net uh, it makes more sense to me as a business leader in terms of responding to my uh, stakeholders. Um, as a lawyer, I would recommend strongly against that. I would never recommend breaking any law ever uh, because you don't have to. Uh, that's the main reason. Um, uh, and because if you hire good lawyers and good uh, advisors, uh, anyone who like me that's uh, worked in Washington has seen how the sausage is made, you realize that law uh, is not perfect uh, right. and that th there, there are ways to address the, those imperfections to your benefit uh, in, in a way that, you know, good attorneys and, and good advisors can identify. So um, again, uh, uh, th that's my response to your, to your question, Richard. I hope that's helpful. No, very helpful. No, thank you. And so look, here's a big question because you touch on a, a number of things about um, potentially the role of government in enterprise risk management. I mean, we're talking about nationwide and even global risk management. So what is the role of government, you think? You mentioned Sarbanes-Oxley. There's obviously, with the most recent events around COVID and, uh, you know, FDA implications, et cetera. Um, what would you say is the role of government in the ERM? Well, in ERM, okay. Um, I would suggest that government uh, should always try to present clear a guideline. So there's a, a basic statute that may be passed uh, in, in the United States by Congress and signed by the president. But then there are implementing regulations generally by whichever area that law touches on by an executive agency. So uh, in, in the area that I know best in life sciences, that, that's the um, Department of Health and Human Services, and more specifically, the Food and Drug Administration yep. that may pass implementing regulations. Uh, all too often, those regulations are rightfully criticized as a being too confusing, too cumbersome, too many. Um, that that really incurs unnecessary costs and expense on on industry, um, and so industry is frustrated and and tries often, whether um, consciously or unconsciously, to to get around those regulations in order to meet their business goals. Not necessarily they disagree with the intent, but um, the practical effect is that they, they find ways to shorten that time period um, in terms of complying. Uh, so again, government is a broad term. It really depends on what jurisdiction, even within the US, what states, different states have uh, different types of government. And, and the other aspect, and, and I say this with, with some apprehension because I don't want to get into the political side, but other than to recognize that um, good advisors, good leaders understand that, that risk um, uh, has a political dimension to it. It does matter who's in the White House. It does matter who's in Congress because they have different points of view. 
they have different priorities. And we see it um, over the past now 30 years in, in healthcare specifically. The and these are the exact words that were used in, in the early 1990s in, in President Clinton's administration. There's an effort to reform healthcare and led by Mrs. Clinton at the time. And that ended up not succeeding or not going forward. On the heels of that, there was the uh, war declared on healthcare fraud by the Department of Justice. And that war continues to be waged here now 30 years later, regardless of the political party in the White House, regardless of administration. Why? Because there's safety and there's lots of money and they're finding a fraud. And guess what? It's good politics. Um, healthcare fraud, the fight against healthcare fraud uh, cuts across all demographic lines uh, and all political lines. So that's why we've seen that. But we have seen ebbs and flows in enforcement. And so a couple of years ago, I wrote an article that it sounds like you read, um, predicting that enforcement risks will go up uh, yeah. under the new uh, Biden administration. And lo and behold, um, there's always a lag because it as a um, congressional staff member back in the 90s, I did some research and uh, at the time, uh, President Clinton was being criticized for how long he, his appointments were taking to get in place. But again, regardless of the political party, it takes time to get their people in place and for them to start acting. Well, here we are now um, in 2022, and we've seen a series of memos and speeches that are all very carefully choreographed over the course of this year. And the most recent one on September 15th by uh, Ms. Lisa Monaco, I believe, the uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General. Um, talking about the enforcement priorities against criminal corporate crime. And she stated the number one, not number two, three, four, five, number one priority uh, is to prosecute individuals. In other words, hold individuals accountable for corporate criminal crime. So they're going after individuals. They're going after CES. What this means is they're, they're looking to put to indict people, prosecute them and convict them. And former attorney general, former governor Dick Thornburg, back in the late 90s, when we were co-speakers at a conference in Washington during a break, he said to me, you know, Steve, when the Department of Justice makes something a one or two priority, I can guarantee you two things happen, more indictments, more convictions. So we should really sit up and listen when the government from the Department of Justice um, makes these very carefully thought out pronouncements. Um, you know, and again, I'm sorry, uh, I'm here at a, at a, a location. Uh, this is not my office. No worries. No worries. But at any event, that's a very key uh, political dimension that most people either um, are gloss over, don't factor in. Um, and, and again, it's not about being a Republican or Democrat. It's about how politics affects enforcement, how politics affects risk and, and, and how it may ebb and flow. And it could factor into your business decision of whether to move forward or something or not. Um, and I know to the purists out there, they, they're cringing and saying, oh, that doesn't feel right. You know, it's either right or it's wrong. How, how can you sort of depend? And that's not what I'm suggesting. I agree uh, that something can be either right or wrong, like the Ten Commandments. And no matter <laughs> what administration's in place, they're the Ten Commandments. But uh, as a practical matter uh, in, in scoring your risk, risk ranking uh, different risks, it does matter who's the enforcer. It does matter 
uh, what the priorities are that that enforcer has their marching orders uh, for. So um, if, if I'm the president or CEO of a, of a company, uh, I need to be aware of that and factor that in. Of course, the number one factor always is uh, in life sciences, patient safety, again, doing the right thing for the right reasons, in the right way, and again, inspiring people about the sincere commitment to those values. Um, and that's where, uh, if I may uh, say that when it comes to compliance and risk, um, here more recently over the past 20 years, the word ethics has been added. Yep. Uh, ethics compliance. And that, that's the reason for that. Um, I was um, one of the first uh, to do that, at least in life sciences, back in 2001. Absolutely. Okay. All right. And so let, let's go down a rung now and let's talk about the hows of risk assessment and so forth, right? I want to get down to the real kind of nitty gritty now, right? So right. what is Steve's playbook for conducting a good risk assessment? And what are the different types of risks that we should be considering in companies? Sure. Well, uh, with all good fact gathering, you yep. have to go at it from different uh, angles, from different perspectives. So, and I was taught this by uh, various FBI and OIG investigators. So first you start with a, a document request, a document review, see what's in writing. Um, simultaneously, you schedule and conduct interviews, face-to-face -face interviews. But first you do your homework before you do anyone. So you approach it from a basis of knowledge. Um, and, and if there's any suspicions on your part, and, uh, and this is particularly true in any kind of investigation of the wrongdoing, you save the uh, suspect for last <laughs> um, because you want to have as much information uh, at your fingertips uh, when you're speaking to that person so that you can uh, recognize when perhaps they're not uh, either telling the truth or sharing in the fullness of the information you have found from other sources. But uh, again, that's not the context here. This is a, a risk assessment, just trying to determine what are the risks that are important for this company to identify and then to address through proper processes, policies, procedures, training, et cetera. And so um, we, again, review their documents. Uh, but in the documents, and the, the, again, the first thing that I had referenced earlier is that as a risk assessor, you want to understand the business. You want to understand what is the business objective of this entity, what are its short-term objectives um, for the next year, right, over the several months, what are their products, uh, what are the uh, markets for those products, and really uh, understand that, that business. So it's a real learning aspect on the risk assessor's part from the fact gathering. But then you also want to see, okay, now that I'm, I'm really learning about this business, I want to learn about their people. I want to learn about what they've done already to, if anything. Now, sometimes you're told up front, look, we don't have a compliance program in place. We don't have anything in place. We know we need one. And that's why we're talking to you. But at the same time, they frankly may not be giving themselves credit for some things that they can build upon. So that's another key thing that I do all too often. Again, the fear is that this outsider is going to come in and tell us how screwed up we are, just to be blunt about it, and give us this sort of radioactive report um, uh, and just be looking for faults, looking for gaps, uh, looking for, for all these negative things that, again, people cringe in fear, and rightfully so. Who wants that? Um, so what I try to do is... Also, then, in the interview process, begin that conversation 
by being very balanced and saying, all right, tell me about some of your strengths. Tell me about what you think you're doing well and why. Um, and that's often surprising, number one. But number two, uh, it gets people to sort of lighten up a little bit because most people like to talk about good things. And before you even do that, you, you have them talk about themselves. Number one lesson is people like to talk about themselves. I'm a prime example here today. <laughs> um, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, right. So, but that's true. That's a fact. Uh, and, and that's an icebreaker where I have um, come out of many, many interviews now over um, nearly 30 years where I've had so many people react, say, how did you get this information? We never knew about this. And, and the answer is there's a real method uh, to this madness. Um, and part of it is, is again, before you ask people to talk about themselves, guess what? You talk about yourself and you give yourself an introduction. It's not just about where you went to school or, or what kind of work you do. You give a little uh, insight into your family, to who you are as a person. Uh, you know, that I have uh, a young daughter. I've got two dogs. Uh, I like to swim. I like to do anything that involves uh, sun, surf and, and water. Um, and uh, I love a good margarita or two or something. Uh, um and, and that's the kind of sort of personal exchange, again, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or, or more broadly in a training session with a group of people. Again, you have to be careful. <laughs> um, but uh, so you want to develop that connection where people sort of relax a little bit, much as you've tried to and have succeeded in relaxing me so that they're comfortable in exchanging information that you have very thoughtfully uh, developed a game plan as to how are you going to prioritize your questions uh, and, and when you're going to hit sort of the big question that you may be saving so that they're as relaxed as possible and they're as poised, prepped as possible to answer that question that may be an awkward or difficult question, <coughs> um, but maybe not. Again, don't want to scare people. So again, to your question, how do you conduct a good risk assessment? You, you get all the documents there are that pertain in this case, to compliance and risk. Um, and, and also you get all the documents on the web, anything relating that to their business, their business plan. So you learn about the business. Then you could conduct interviews, have that human interaction. Something else that we do, um, we have a proprietary risk scoring tool that people can log on to online. And we pre-populated and again, customized in our conversations with the general counsel or, or the compliance officer, whomever we're interacting with and sponsoring our project um, and tailor those risks that we've developed over many years now that are typical co commercial compliance risks for a life science biotech company. Um, so they involve, uh, just to give you some examples, uh, sales and marketing activities like advisory boards and speaker programs, um, medical interactions, uh, those kinds of things. And there are a lot more details. There are about 24 or so uh, or 25 <laughs> specific risks. And so then we ask them to score those risks on two axes. One is on vulnerability. In other words, what do you think is in place now uh, in terms of your compliance program? And, and we ask them to, uh, relative to these risks. And, and, um, and it's a, meant to be intuitive. The lower the score, the lower the risk. A one, you get everything in place. You got policies, you get training, and people are following it. On the other extreme, it's a four. You get nothing in place. And so uh, your risk is highest. And then in between, some gradation of that that we define. Then the other axis is impact. 
And then what that measures is historically, uh, what is the federal government's focus, enforcement focus on these specific risks? Again, same kind of intuitive scoring, lower the score, the lower the risk. If it's a one, you know, historically, government hasn't really cared and hasn't done much on this particular risk. And a four, oh, guess what? There have been convictions and corporate integrity agreements and settlements. And then in between uh, some gradation that we define. And so we accumulate all the scores and all these risks on, on these axes, and we plot a heat map. And guess what? We juxtapose it against our own score and, and then compare and see if it was if there is what we would refer to as a perception gap. Uh, do people perceive that their risk is lower than what we believe it is? Or is it higher or is it commensurate within a reasonable uh, margin of error? And so that's just but one way of measuring that together with the interviews, together with the document reviews. Um, and again, again, juxtaposing is against all current activities, conviction, uh, settlements, and, and other activities from the federal government to keep it as fresh as possible. Now, the one other thing that we do, we strongly recommend is after this snapshot in time is accomplished, is not to settle for that snapshot, but to be what we refer to as continuously credible. And this is in keeping with current Department of Justice guidelines. Um, uh, that that talk about that and the way to do that and this will um, uh, warm your heart as a finance person because it involves data uh, it's it's accessing data uh, with a few clicks and, and really uh, seeing comparing how do you stack up against others I find CEOs and even CFOs and other executives ask three basic questions when it comes to compliance number one what do we need to do number two what are others doing? And number three, how do we know what we're doing works um, and is effective? And so with data, you can answer those questions precisely and, it, and you can graphically depict it in a nice presentation together with, with other uh, things that you're doing. So again, a, a nice risk assessment takes into account all those things and puts together a report that has a graphical depictions, maturity scales, of, of uh, what's expected. Again, I think what's very important with executives, and you tell me, Richard, uh, being an executive yourself is conveying uh, useful information quickly and precisely so that you can look at it and basically get the key takeaways in a matter of minutes uh, and with some you know, in-depth explanation sort of added uh, verbally, but basically have a few slides that tells you the key takeaways that you need to know. Uh, and that's what I think executives expect. That's what boards expect. That's been my experience. Uh, some like to get in more in-depth conversations, but most generally don't um, because they don't have the time. It's not a criticism of them. They have so much on their plate that they need to keep moving uh, and, and be really high energy. And so you need to be responsive to that. Absolutely. No, absolutely well said there. Stephen, what I would say to you is, um, you know, with developing kind of risk programs, um, I know there's many scores out there, resilience scores. I love the, your example of the heat map, because for, for me, um, you know, being in the game around enterprise risk management, I found two things that we always consistently struggled with, whichever company I was with. It was number one, what's the priority? Because there's multiple, there's, you know, multiple risks across the organization. And so how do you really prioritize those actions? Because 
we live in a busy world and there's a lot of stuff going on. So what do you go after first? And secondly, I've always found a struggle with, well, what is your risk tolerance? What exactly is your risk tolerance? And, you know, you'd bat it around and it typically would be some kind of financial measure of some sort, et cetera. But what would be your one piece of advice to executives on how do you prioritize, you know, when you've got this population and this portfolio of all these risks in the company you've identified, you've only got so much time and energy and resources to be able to do it. And then how do you establish the risk tolerance around that? What would be your one advice to executives? Well, the one advice when it comes to risk tolerance is uh, do your due diligence, mm -hmm. do your homework, and have evidence that you've done it, okay? Because any decision you make uh, needs to be supported, uh, and you need to prove it. You know, if it's if in the world of uh, healthcare and reimbursement, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the adage is, if it's not documented, it's not done. So uh, in terms of uh, holding yourself accountable and being true to your charge and responsibility as an executive, that you will always do your absolute best to make the best decision every single time. Um, part of that duty uh, of diligence is to conduct that diligence and to have the right people doing it for you. And that's why it's so important as an executive to have the right team. Uh, and that's not just an internal team, it's an external team. Uh, you know, you need to hire the right people that can give you that expertise like that um, and, and and not waste your time and give you that diligence so that you can weigh those risks and give you their advice on it. And so that's, you know, that's what we do. Uh, we, again, try to make the lives of the people we serve easier and simpler uh, by giving them the confidence um, that we're giving them good information. Uh, and and part of that is telling them when we don't have it, you know, just being very candid. Look, either because the information simply doesn't exist or uh, we we don't have it because that's uh, know, outside of our expertise. But we know people that do. Again, always coming up with the solution um, uh, is how I've been raised as a child, but also uh, throughout my life and the various experiences I've had is uh, never give up ever and find find a way to create a solution that strikes that right balance that achieves the, the goal and achieves the mission. Um, and if you assemble the right diverse team, the people that look at the world from different ways, you're going to find the answer. I yeah. guarantee it uh, with enough energy, uh, imagination and commitment. Um, the solution is there. It's just a question of coming up with it. Um, and, uh, and you're right. Time is often the number one uh, barrier here where people just feel like they don't have the time, but that's where the five or the more off-color version, six Ps that I learned in the Marines of proper preparation prevents blank performance, <laughs> uh, poor performance um, is something people should always remember. Uh, but sometimes again, you're thrown into a situation where you just haven't had the opportunity to prepare. And then you have to do the best that you can with what you have. Uh, and again, do what you can to find as much as you can about a situation and then make a good decision and execute against it and be willing to adapt and be flexible as you get more information. Understood. So uh, a good leader um, shares that with the people around him to, again, inspire and motivate them so that they they can see the the sincere commitment to doing something to a level of excellence that's inspiring 
that pushes people beyond the limits they think they, they themselves have by seeing that this person is doing it themselves and expecting others to rise to the occasion and uh, believing in this person's honesty, frankly, their character. Uh, that's why it really does matter. I think Warren Buffett says this, that, um, you know, the number one of the number one things he looks for um, in corporations and leaders in corporations is character. The competence alone is not enough. Um, you know, and so there, there are endless examples of that uh, in the in the annals of uh, corporate enforcement and corporate settlements. But um, where in retrospect, all too often, people have succumbed to temptation. And the thing about that is, uh, these are all generally very highly educated, bright people, but but somehow they've fallen short. And they, what they do is they rationalize and it becomes a snowball effect of, of uh, skimping here, skimping there. And then that creates another opportunity or situation. Well, once you skimp there, then oops, we, we better fix that this way. That also triggers another problem. So it's a slippery slope, uh, quite literally, when it comes to that stuff. And that's why you know, um, the whole FTX uh, situation uh, that we're just still unraveling and learning about. And then uh, the Theranos situation, which is now concluded with the prison sentences. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to address both in my book. I've already addressed Theranos. I'm starting a new chapter uh, called What the FTX <laughs> Happened. <laughs> um, but <laughs> at the risk of uh, in offending some people, but in any event, um, I think one of the things that I'm finding is more and more that smart people can get really way off track uh, because they're blinded by their own ambition. They're, they're, they don't have a, a credible uh, person there saying, wait a second, time out, um, that has enough authority to capture their attention. And so this goes back to uh, the role of corporate boards and governance where they have to be more involved, frankly, than they have been. Uh, and, and it has to be, and that's where compliance now, and then I'd say the ethics and compliance programs have taken on more uh, meaning as opposed to just a tactical arm of governance. Um, it should be part and parcel of a broader strat strategic effort to um, have the board oversee executive teams and have executive teams report back up to the board have active oversight and and ethics compliance is a is a huge vehicle to address risks and 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 risk management. So, um, I, I really think things are evolving in a pace that uh, hasn't been completely articulated. I don't think yet in textbooks and in business schools and law schools. And hopefully, I'll help do that. About and you you hit a fab, fabulous point about what is what exactly is the role of the board, and I completely agree. Within the top three, it's um, oversight over kind of risk management and um, just general risk that um, impacts the company. You touched on a couple of them, uh, you know, FTX, you know, obviously, you know, this is new news as well as Theranos, you know, the news yesterday. Of course, Enron was a big one and then the 2008 global recession. So um, what would you say, Steve, and you may have answered them, but I've given an opportunity to maybe expand. What are the lessons learned from those major global fallouts. I could add, you know, Health South and a few others to them, but what do you think we've yeah. learned from those? That's a good example. I, I I met with the founder of Health South in Birmingham in his office and 
and got an up close and personal um, opportunity to interact uh, with that gentleman. Uh, it's fascinating. It really is. Uh, uh, you know, people are complex, uh, and no one should ever rush to uh, any uh, superficial conclusions. Um, but I think at the heart of it all, at the heart of it all, uh, let's start with the facts. Uh, people go off track. I don't think there's any dispute about that. Um, then the question is why, and then how do we prevent that in the future? Um, now, one of the things I won't do and that I've guarded against uh, is to say, uh, Ethics and compliance programs are the be all and end all and the answer to all of our corporate problems. You know, no way, <laughs> no way. Uh, th that's that's an overstatement. It's uh, self-aggrandizing. It's it's uh, it's just not true. Um, but it is a piece of the larger mosaic of the solution. Uh, but uh, I, I do think that one of the things that I found uh, when I went through business school, and I'm fortunate to have gone through what I believe is the best one, and, and I certainly I think most agree is one of the best, is that all business schools tend to fall short on talking about this topic of integrity, of ethics, of, of compliance and its importance. Because uh, I can see it in my classmates' eyes at first when, when you raise it, you know, they go, no, you know, like this. So here we go. You know, it's these uh, theorists that have never been responsible for a P&L. Uh, for a profit margin, who don't know what they're talking about. They're, in, they're these lawyers or ethicists in this ivory tower abstract world that are preaching to us, and we're in the trenches in the real world trying to create value um, and and uh, address the realities of a very tough competitive world where not everybody, in fact, most people, one could claim, don't play that by the rules. You know, there's bribery left and right. Uh, uh, as we're seeing um, in the world, and that's a whole nother topic. Uh, there's, again, a very real political dimension to that, by the way, uh, of enforcement, particularly depending on the country that's doing it. But in any event, um, there's a lot of rationalization and justification for sort of not taking compliance and business ethics too seriously. Unfortunately, uh, I think that's one of the root causes here is is um, just we need to do a better job at the earlier stages of educating our future leaders of the importance of of, of staying true to values, of staying true to values, of staying true to what's right, what's wrong. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, my teacher, and I remember it <laughs> very clearly, she said, you know, as you grow older, People are going to try to convince you that what's right and wrong is very gray. And she said, don't believe it. You know, in your heart, you're learning it now, what's right and wrong. And sure, the world will get more complex as you get older, but the core principles won't change. And you'll know it in your heart. Um, and so stay true to that. I think all too often, again, temptation rears its head and, and, and people can rationalize doing first little things, and then that leads to bigger things. So number one, uh, I think we need to start educating uh, on this area in a different way, because of the way people have educated before has in fact been boring, has in fact been ominous and cringeworthy uh, and, and a great solution for insomnia, right? <laughs> so uh, I think now 
we we need to to quote Steve Jobs, think differently about risk, ethics, compliance, and reconnect it to the core purpose that people want to go into business for is to create value, to create something that improves our world, that improves people's lives, and to show that that will help you do that, that it will be a force multiplier in that, that if you inspire people to do the right thing and you define it clearly as to what that is, uh, they will rise to the occasion because they're they're not saying, all right, yeah, yeah, we want to be compliant. No, they're going to say, we want to be successful and 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 create value and create this life-saving product or or create this amazing computer uh, that will change the world, right? Because that's what inspired everyone at Apple. Um, as tough as Steve Jobs apparently was to work with, he inspired people with his vision. And so that's what great leaders do. And that's what we need to connect ethics, compliance, risk management to, not just to staying out of trouble, but really to being successful and tying it to success, to how to win with compliance, how to win with risk management, how to win with ethics uh, and drive growth. And that's the other thing. Uh, there are plenty of companies that are doing this. It's just people may not know about it. And so we need to, again, publicize that in a way that um, is, is clear. No worries. Look, I beautifully said, Steve, beautifully. I, I think, you know, you led up to, to that point. I love your passion on the screen for the audience. This is the big <laughs> point that Steve is making. So thank you for that. So, so Steve, I, I, I guess, what mistakes do executives make then in risk management? What are the types of things um, that as executives, aspiring leaders, they need to be considering now? Because we do make mistakes. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we overestimate our abilities and underestimate what can go wrong. You said that before, early on in, in your lead-off. What other mistakes do we make? Well, there, there some mistakes I've seen is, oh, is frankly, after companies have gotten into trouble and then have fixed whatever processes were broken and put in place good good measures, and, and let's not pretend that takes investment, that takes capital, takes resources to do that. Um, and they've reached a certain level that's that's working, that's good. Um, and then they they relax. It's it's frankly something they taught me in the Marines, uh, in the infantry. Uh, I was an artillery officer, but all Marines are trained as infantry officers. Uh, one of the basic lessons is that you're most vulnerable uh, to a counterattack after you've just taken the hill and have won the, the battle. Why? Because you relax and you let your guard down and then the enemy takes advantage and swoops up and takes back the hill. Um, I see that in business where executives sort of relax and say, okay, um, you know, we've solved this problem, whatever it may be, and we put in this new accounting system, we put in uh, more auditing or whatever they've invested in, and then they relax and, and don't reinvest. They don't keep it fresh. Uh, to the DOJ's point, they don't continuously reassess risk by analyzing data or doing whatever it is they need to do. Um, that's uh, probably the number one mistake I've seen uh, that they really uh, exposes them yet again to to unnecessary more risk, greater risk. Uh, another uh, mistake uh, that I've seen uh, people do is, uh, and this isn't just regard to risk, it's just um, regard to everything. I've seen perhaps some of the smartest people uh, make this risk as executives where 
they try to do everything that they they feel and they likely are the smartest person in the room and therefore discount other people's opinions and just sort of go with what they believe to be right and that often leads to sort of tunnel vision um and and mistakes that they aren't aware of um again going back to the analogy of the abraham lincoln cabinet where you want not just to have different points of view in the room but to listen to them um and take them into account it doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody but um uh, you know i i have found um some people just say you know i'm going to do it my way and and more often than not if that's the only way they do it uh it's going to lead to a problem particularly in an area like compliance and risk that, that does have its nuances uh and maybe counterintuitive uh and, and again as we referenced it's not all just what does the law say that's another thing that i hear a lot show me where show me where in the law this says i have to do this right well it's not always that black and white um and that's that's a real risk that uh, may take some time to appreciate as to well how does that work then i thought we're a system of laws well we are but in this particular area where it's really governed by guidances and precedent and uh, and the more you ignore that the greater your risk are as a practical matter um and so it you know again th those are the some of the, the things that certainly come to my mind um and then uh, finally on a human level um, and this is really has nothing to do with risk or compliance, but it does go to how that risk can be magnified um, by just how you treat your people. Um, I see leaders that are seen as being arrogant, uh, just very simple examples. They, they walk in in the morning in the hallway, they get in the elevator and they, they don't engage with, uh, you know, whoever's in the elevator. I, I learned this from a president who was very much uh, engaging. And he said, Steve, one thing as a leader, you should always know that people are watching you the second you step your foot onto the company property, that anything and everything you do and say is absorbed and evaluated and assessed. So take that as an opportunity. Don't take it as something to fear or cringe from, but take it as an opportunity that, that anytime you engage someone, that that that's an opportunity to, to win them over, to make, to inspire and motivate them. Uh, by if nothing else, your good cheer, uh, your kindness, your your thoughtfulness by saying hello, how are you, and really meaning it. Again, it may sound really simple, and it is, but all too often, um, people take themselves too seriously. And guess what? As a technical matter, the number one risk to all uh, life science companies, at least, is an internal whistleblower, someone who's a disgruntled, jaded, feels disrespected. More often than not, they're a middle manager, the graduate degree, so they're smart people. Um, and that's one way of making sure, at least on that at that level, that doesn't happen. So there's some real practical risk management consequences for just being nice <laughs> uh, and polite. Absolutely, Stephen. And I love your point about people pointing to the kind of the laws and saying, you know, what do we have to do? But there's a fine line between that and ethics, which is what we should do. Is, exactly. Is really the point, you know? Absolutely. Okay, the, the big question, then we're going to move to the quick round, Steve, and you can answer this um, however you'd like, Steve. What do we learn from 2020 and 2021? From 2020 and 2021? In, in the past couple of years, obviously a lot has hit us. Yes, as yes. Nation, as a global nation, what do you think we well, learned? And well, I know you personally, 
had um you know you you, you had some challenges with covid as well so answer yes. how you'd like to do it it's what do you think we learned as a global nation over the past couple of years um well here in the united states in particular i, I think um we we learned and realized uh, sadly how divided we are um, as people and how difficult it is to rally people around a simple concept like putting on a mask and how resistant uh, that people are if if they don't believe in something again that that's uh, that's an example of compliance right of how do you inspire motivate people to do something. They don't want to do like wear a mask. And uh, I hated wearing masks, um, but I did. Uh, and as, as you know, um, I um, was in the hospital for a week and the first three days was told, Mr. Vinci, we don't know how this will end for you. Um, pretty ominous words um, to hear. And at the time, I sort of laughed it off and said, gee, um, uh, let me just absorb that. I'm just getting here. And they, they asked me, what would you like to do? And I initially some four letter words came to mind. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? What do I want to do? I, I want to live. <laughs> um, what do you think? Um, and I want you to help me. But um, these past two years on the more positive side, um, and this is, I think, is is um, what we as Americans uh, really believe in, is that we can get through anything yeah. uh, with the with, with the sufficient will, the sufficient um, imagination. I mean, we brought to market uh, what have appear to be life-saving vaccines in, in unheard of record time. It took years and years, and this took months. It's just unbelievable how working together, much like you know, in every other challenge that America has faced, um, we've come through it, and we've come through it stronger and better. So if it, uh, I don't want to say it doesn't kill because it killed a lot of people, um, but it didn't kill our country. It didn't kill. Uh, our constitution, although it certainly has been threatened here, as we've seen. And that's what's really ominous, uh, I think, uh, here going forward, is that that we shouldn't take for granted. That's another thing we've learned. We can't take things for granted that we're immune, uh, either from deadly viruses or from the kind of challenges that some other countries have faced historically. Uh, we've been buffered by two big oceans uh, uh, and and that's been a security, a blessing in ways. But now with the being so interconnected um, in so many other ways, uh, we're we're more vulnerable perhaps than we may have been in some ways, but then also stronger. Um, because again, at the end of the day, uh, we're a very diverse country. We have incredible capabilities economically. Um, but I think our greatest strength that we've proven time and time again, and that and I hearken back to this, that it's that this is why the word compliance is so countercultural to us as Americans. That we began as as revolutionaries, uh, not being compliant, right? So that's who we are. We we forged to the West, to unknown grounds, um, you know, breaking all kinds of rules and and norms uh, of behavior and you name it. Um, so as Americans culturally and historically, um, we're we're not compliant in that sense, but in another sense. I think it's fair to say that whether starting with the Puritans and then subsequent immigrant populations, uh, that those immigrants uh, and people that came here, to include Native Americans, by the way, I think have all been spiritual in some fashion or another. And in other words, they've been led by values. And the people that survive are the people that are true to their values. 
and recognize that it's not just their own short-term self-interest that's important, but it's really a more collective interest. It's it's the 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 whole is greater than any subpart. And that's why we're the United States. And that's why we need to stay United States, because it's united that we stay strong. And when we're separate and 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 break down into individual self-interested groups, that's when things get fractured. That's when things fall apart. That's when temptation raises its ugly head uh, and and invites wrongdoing. Um, and so I think, um, you know, today's these events over these past two years has really underscored and highlighted in very new ways that uh, have been, I think, shocking uh, to all of us uh, in one form or another, regardless of your point of view. Um, but I, I'm a big believer that, uh, again, um, through surviving challenges comes strength and the perseverance uh, and that, again, uh, compliance can be turned into a competitive advantage uh, by seeing that staying true to your values, by ensuring that people are led clearly, passionately by uh, someone that is leading by example, that believes what they're saying to others and is following that, that that's a source of inspiration that leads to success, regardless of the industry, regardless of the circumstance, um, that we as human beings respond to that um, just naturally. Uh, I also do believe that regardless of all the bad news and everything you read about, that um, 90% of people are really good people. And, yeah. and I said 90% is probably higher than that. Um, um, uh, and, I, and and as proof, I, I tell myself when I'm up in a plane, I'm looking down like on New York City and seeing everything that's going on, all the trains, planes and automobiles and and all the activity that uh, by and large is working, right? I'm in the plane, it's working. The trains are working, the cars are working, the construction is working, the TV, all this stuff is working. It couldn't possibly work if most people weren't doing their job, if most people weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. So I think that's a real source of faith and confidence and inspiration to just keep us going that the future is bright. And I'm a big believer in that, that, uh, it's easy to sort of get depressed and downtrodden in the in the muck um, that may be in the present moment, but then to reflect on the past and then look towards the future and see, you know, we've we've succeeded in the past. I think you know, people, strong people, will say we can do this. Uh, we'll get through it. We'll find a way, and we won't quit until we do. And I think that's the bottom line: never quit, never ever 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 quit. Just like Winston Churchill. Uh, just like all the other great leaders, uh, like Newt Rockne at Notre Dame, you name it. Um, that's the source uh, of, of uh, and that comes from integrity and character combined with confidence. You know, again, uh, having the wisdom to apply it in the right way in the right time uh, to really connect with people. And I, I really do think um, in the broad macro sense that we're talking about now, it all connects back to the very specific um topic that we started with, which is a risk management compliance. And again, how do you get, motivate people within a, a corporate environment to come together as a team and achieve great things um, and want to comply? Uh, and so uh, again, uh, the bottom line in terms of real specific techniques, read my book <laughs> when it comes out. <laughs> That's awesome. And beautifully said, Steve. Beautifully said. Okay, we'll move to the quick round, Steve. Um, what would you change? in any area of life, not just business? 
Um, uh, I, I would hope that people would lead. This is going to sound awfully um, hippie-esque, John Lennon-esque, is that um, that people would start with a, a sense of, of love and commitment to each other as humans uh, and start from that basis versus sort of uh, sometimes end up there or never get there. Um, I think we should all, as, as a society, start with a common respect for one another as human beings and assume that we're good. Uh, and I think, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little choked up, but uh, I, I, that's what I would change. It is, and all too often, I don't see it. And when I do see it, uh, I am so happy um, because you know it when you see it. Uh, you really do. It's, you know why? Because you feel it. You feel it right here. Yeah. Beautifully said, Steve. Okay. What are you grateful for in any area of life, not just business? Uh, first and foremost, uh, to be alive, <laughs> um, which I don't take for granted. But then um, right there together, it's for my family. I know um, it really is. Uh, without them, um, I, I wouldn't be here, number one, truly. Uh, my wife and my daughter saved my life. Uh, I, uh, but also because of the joy and love that they um bring into my world the beauty that they bring into my world um so that's what i'm most grateful for beautifully said okay a couple more questions what do you think are the greatest threats to business over the next decade the greatest threats to business over the next decade yeah uh, wow um i i think the the greatest threat to business over the next decade may be tied uh, candidly to our global security, given the war in Ukraine and given uh, the increasing tension between the world powers, nuclear powers of China, United States, uh, and and Russia. Um, that that um, spinning out of control. Uh, you can forget about business and everything else. <laughs> uh, so uh, I I think. Uh, on, on a on a huge, super huge macro global scale, that's the number one threat. On a more specific, sorry, economic scale, um, I would say the the number one threat is uh, for business not to fully take into account um, uh, the uh, threat of of, of uh, technology on individual freedom um, and left unchecked. Uh, the core to the capitalist society is freedom, uh, the freedom of choice, uh, freedom to make decisions, as we've seen. I'm a big believer in free enterprise, democracy, and capitalism going hand in hand. And I'm a rabid capitalist. Uh, my parents escaped uh, uh, oppression, oppressive communist society um, and came to this. And we're loaded with faults where, you know, that, that need to be addressed and as we've seen over the past couple of years, uh, uh, you know, the whole uh, issue of racial inequality and suppression and, and how that concept has been suppressed. Uh, and, and again, that that's a huge threat. I think the more, again, um, regardless of race, religion, et cetera, we lead with uh, respect and love for one another as humans. You know, forget any other nomenclature, humans, we're human. So we're all connected and we should treat each other that way. Um, but the business uh, just being short-term focused on profits for, by quarter and not and getting spun out of control um, with uh, 
these incredible uh, technology advances in artificial intelligence, et cetera, um, really risk us. Got it. Understood. Okay. Last question before the very last one is, what do you mean by privacy? Because you mentioned that really about um, obviously freedom. Um, what do you mean by privacy is the new compliance? Oh, well, um, I mean that in that uh, compliance sort of rose up on the heels of that Clinton and healthcare fraud war yes. declaration uh, and became sort of the um, corporate activity du jour um, in the 90s and then into the 2000s. And it sort of followed uh, the path of most reimbursement. <laughs> it followed the money, the most dollars uh, within healthcare. So it led clearly to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but then uh, privacy now, uh, and it, it goes back to what I was saying, increasingly uh, the concern about data security, privacy, patient health information security has been um, catalyzed, magnified, accelerated all during this COVID sort of zoomified world that we live in. And so that's what I mean is the new compliance is the new sort of hot topic for good reason, uh, because there's real risk there that this data, if stolen, which it is uh, and has been uh, and, uh, and misused, can have wreak havoc on, on individuals and families uh, and on the government in terms of reimbursable effects, reimbursement effects, cost effects. So in other words, uh, if companies were focused on commercial compliance and making sure their sales and marketing were done properly in the 2000s, now they need to equally focus on making sure privacy data security is excuse me, in compliance. Understood, Stephen. I had um, clearly there's the protected health info, which HIPAA, PCI right. compliance, um, personal data privacy rights, and also disaster preparedness as well were, were some of the things that I had kind of just noted under the privacy section. Oh, okay. absolutely. Yep, that's all part and parcel of that. So yes, I certainly agree with you, Richard. That, that's all part of that broader umbrella. umbrella absolutely. Last question, Steve. What is your parting advice to leaders in the area of compliance and risk management? Inspire compliance to make compliance a competitive advantage. Uh, and if it, it, you want to distill it down to two words, inspire compliance. Just remember that as a leader, you have the bully pulpit. And just as they say, the president does for our country. And there's great power with that. Take advantage of it. Leverage it to the max. Uh, what you say matters. What you do matters. And so inspire the company to be successful. And part of that is explaining why compliance is important. It's not compliance for compliance sake. It's compliance to keep patients safe. It's compliance to ensure they get the products they need to improve their lives, to be safe um, and, and to survive. Uh, again, it's in the life sciences context, but it applies to any business. So inspire compliance to inspire success. Wonderful, wow. Fantastic, Steve. Steve, thank you so much. I, I tell you, I've really enjoyed our session together. You know, I, I, I can tell that, um, you know, there's a deep spirituality about you. This was a very easy conversation, a, a real connectedness. I hope you felt the same way. Um, you know, I know you live your life with, with love and respect. And I know for sure you're doing your bit to elevate humanity, Steve. It's just tremendous. And you're saving lives with all your work that you're doing around the world. So, I really appreciate this time and I know your wisdom bites are going to change some lives, Steve. So thank you so much for that. Well, Richard, if I may say, um, 
by you having these podcasts and creating this platform and, and forum and opportunity to engage in these discussions, these sharing of these ideas, you're certainly doing your part. And I have to say, you're an incredibly uh, exude positive energy, you exude happiness, you exude all of these wonderful things that make it easy for someone like me that's never met you before to engage in these thoughtful conversations. And I really want to thank you. And it's been a real pleasure and honor to be your guest. And I wish you much success and much happiness uh, during this holiday season and throughout the rest of the year. And ditto to you for everything you've just said, Steve. Absolute pleasure. Happy holidays to you as well and to, and to your lovely family. And stay safe. Thank All you so you. much. You too, Richard. Thank you. No okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So here are my key takeaways from my conversation with Steve Vincey in turning compliance into a force multiplier. And this revolves around how do you make sure people are doing what they need to do from a compliance standpoint. Steve Vincey offers a few tips. Listen. If you want people to listen to you and embrace your advice, you first need to listen to them to understand their fears, their challenges, and their motivations. You need to be able to answer the why behind the what. Why do I need to comply? What's in it for me if I do? Number two, inspire and motivate. Logic alone doesn't always win out, which may be frustrating for some leaders, but that's when the art and science of compliance and of leadership must come to the fore. You need to touch both the hearts and the minds to inspire and motivate people. The trick is to get people to want to comply. Depending on who you are speaking to, you may be able to reach them rationally and sensibly, but sometimes you may need to go deeper to find out what motivates them. And number three, Sometimes you've got to be tough. Eventually though, you may need to get tough. You have to draw limits, Vincey says. You have to discipline people if they don't comply and put themselves and others in jeopardy. You have to know where to draw the line, but you have to do it consistently and fairly, and you must communicate the limits very clearly. Thank you very much. I hope that you found today's session valuable. If so, please follow me on Instagram at outram.richard and post your comments. Thank you again. Until the next podcast.